are going to be in Deuteronomy 23. And I'm, whoever's got sound, I'm a little on the loud side. What happens is I scare myself. So, for most of Deuteronomy 23, Moses is going to turn his preaching to the assembly of the Lord. That's part of why I read that verse out of Philemon, the fellowship of the saints, the assembly of the Lord in Israel. In fact, it's only used, this phrase is only used here in all of Torah, the assembly of the Lord. Now, there's, there's the congregation or there's the assembly at Mount Horeb, but this is the only time where we see Kahal Yahweh, the Kahal Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord and it's, it's incredibly significant. In fact, it's so significant that the first eight verses I'm going to save for Sunday morning. So I'll read them to you, but then we're going to come back and really get into them on Sunday morning as, as Moses preaches this to the assembly and about the assembly. You see, here's the thing. There were exclusions to the assembly of the Lord. We like to say, and it's absolutely true, that Christianity is the most inclusive faith in the world and in history because anybody can be saved. Everybody is welcome to come to Jesus, to, to trust in Him and to allow Him to begin that sanctifying, life-changing work that He begins. There's no limit on that. But there are sometimes limitations to assembly nonetheless. I think we come to church, and because we're so used to the idea of freedom of assembly, well, that's, that's an American Constitution thing. That's not a world history thing. There are many times in history where the people were not free to assemble. And so when we come to assemble, rather than having the attitude that this is my right to be here, I think the attitude is thank Jesus that we get to be here. Because with the Kahal Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord in Israel, there were exclusions. And here's the first one. Verse 1, chapter 23, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. There, I read it. <laughs> and it's not the only thing you're going to hear tonight where you're going to go, you have got to be kidding me. That's in the Bible? This is Bible study, folks. We'll deal with that one on Sunday. Verse 2, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Wait a minute, Lord, that, but that's not the fault of the child. What are you saying? Come back Sunday. <laughs> Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pator of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And that is just a great story. Verse 6, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity in all your days. Verse 7 is a positive. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And you shall not detest an Egyptian, check that out, because you are an alien in his land, and the sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, while we're going to deal with this on Sunday, I want you to keep that phrase, the assembly of the Lord, in the back of your minds because it has so much to do with where he's going now in the sermon. He's still in this section, which is all about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's looking at the last half of the Ten Commandments, and it's making application, and they're very interesting, unique, unusual applications. 
But no doubt, inspired by the Spirit of God, Moses is preaching these marvelous truths. Picking up in verse 9, he says, When you go out as an army against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If there is among you any man who is unclean because of a nocturnal omission, just stay with me tonight then he must go outside the camp because, and he may not re-enter the camp. But it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there. You shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Now this is just... How do we get here? This is so important to get. I'm going to give you, remember last week I gave you several principles. I'm going to give you several more tonight, but about 12 of them. And number one is God requires a clean camp. God requires a clean camp. And what he's talking about here, these are all things that make a camp unclean. He just picks two examples of what can make a camp unclean. The second of which is, if you're going to go to the bathroom, go outside the camp and take your spade with you and cover it up and let it be outside. The camp must be clean. But get this, and here's the important thing. This is not the camp of Israel. He's not talking about the people traveling in as a large encampment through the wilderness. We already followed that. They're on the plains of Moab. They're about to head into the promised land. This is a command for once they're in the promised land. Well, wait a minute. When they're in the promised land, they're not going to camp. So what's he talking about? When they go to war. Note that in verse 9. That's how this section begins. When the Israelites, when you go to war... And then he begins to talk about how you must have a clean camp. This is talking about a camp of Israelite soldiers in wartime. And this is massively important to understand because even in the midst of war, God requ requires a clean and holy camp. When we're at war, and I, yes, I'm talking about spiritual warfare, we fight clean, we don't fight dirty. And we fight holy. We fight clean and we fight holy. 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The flesh fights dirty. Always has, always will. The flesh fights in unholy ways. That is not how we are to fight. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is a clean and a holy camp. If we're going to fight the battle, if we're going to fight the good fight, we do so in cleanliness, in purity, in righteousness. As a holy people, we can't fight any other way. Think through again our gear for war, our equipment, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. These are all in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. You don't even leave camp till you have the gospel of peace on your feet. Shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which Paul says is the word, and prayer. 
These are clean things. These are pure implements. These are holy weapons and, and armament. We're required to fight clean and holy. Why? Verse 14, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. So Moses says, listen, once you're settled across the Jordan, once you're in your townships in the land, as you go up to fight and you camp out, soldiers, you, you bivouac or you get into the barracks and you're ready to, to fight the fight, you've got to keep the camp clean. Make sure the camp is holy. Why, Moses? Because the Lord walks through the camp. This is awesome because we understood that as they were traveling through the wilderness, the tabernacle was centered in the middle of Israel, right? We get that in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and on that, the mercy seat, and above that, God said, I will meet with you. And we know the Shekinah glory of God was there above the tabernacle and filling the tabernacle, so his presence there among the people as they went through the wilderness. But this extends something amazing. He says, when you go out to fight, the Lord is in your camp because he's the one who fights for you. What, do you think he's staying back at the tabernacle while you go off to war? No, he goes before you. He will defeat your enemies. He will deliver you. So the camp must be clean. Here's the cool thing. He still walks in the camp of the saints. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. It's Jesus in that marvelous revelation. And then in Revelation 1.20, John said, as for the mystery, actually, Jesus said to John, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Some think the angels are pastors. If you know pastors, you know many of them are not angels, but we'll talk about that another time. And then he says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What a potent, powerful picture. Jesus walking in among the church in the camp of the saints, in our assembly, to deliver us from our enemies and to defeat, defeat them from before us. And all he asks is a clean camp. Keep it holy. Keep it clean. Keep it righteous because Jesus yet walks in the assembly of the saints. Well, verse 15, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Verse 16, he shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him, and you shall not mistreat him. So not only were they required to keep a clean and holy camp, but they were required to receive the runaway slave. That's the second principle. Receive the runaway slave. Receive the runaway slave. This is not referring to indentured servants in Israel. We're not talking about the Israelite who in their own hard times or, or poverty sell themselves into indentured servitude because every seven years they're set free, right, during the sabbatical year. This is not talking about them. This is talking about the outsider. This is a runaway slave from foreign nations who runs into Israel. And God says when that happens, give them a place to stay. 
give them asylum. Receive the runaway slave. Now, this is completely different than it would later be in Greco-Roman law. In that law, there was an actual word. When a runaway slave, well, when a slave ran away, the citizens were to capture that slave. Man, if you knew there was a runaway slave in your town, you got hold of him and sent him back to his master. And when his master received him back, he was branded with a branding iron in the Latin fugitivus. And the rest of his life, that brand would be on him, fugitivus, fugitive. And if he ever ran again, he was dead. God says, nope, not with my people. Let me read to you from that marvelous little personal letter back in the first century, Philemon, of the receipt of a runaway slave. See, the letter that Paul wrote to his brother Philemon is about a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run from Philemon and had come to Paul and had been serving Paul in prison, by the way. The slave, I love it, the slave ran away and, and got saved and met Paul and begins to serve and run errands for Paul and take care of Paul and, and loves Paul and Paul loves Onesimus and then finds out, well, he's a runaway slave. From who? From Philemon, my friend. And so Paul writes him this marvelous letter. And picking up in verse 10 of the letter of Paul to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Onesimus, his name means useful. And Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who was formerly useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So Paul's using a little wordplay. He's having some fun with the puns, so I'm not the only one. He's useful to both of us. I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your free will. Does Paul know how to work someone or what? It says, for perhaps this was, for this reason, he was separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Listen, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Hey, Philemon, guess what? Onesimus got saved. So he's no longer a slave, because that's what happens when you get saved. No longer a slave. Now he's a brother, so I'm sending your brother back to you. If then you would regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me, Paul says. Receive the runaway slave. Moses speaks it to the people of Israel. Someone runs from another land, from another country, from another people group into Israel. A slave running from a master. You receive that slave and you let them live wherever they want. Once useless, now useful to the kingdom. After all, as the Lord will later remind the people here in this teaching, you were slaves. You were slaves too. Jesus said the, to the apostles on the night of his betrayal, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. 
And Paul said in Romans 6, verse 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And Paul then says in Galatians 4, 7, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And ladies, he's talking to you and me both. You are a son. I, I keep wanting to drive this point home. And I've said it before, if I have to be a bride, you have to be a son. But it's a, a powerful way that God, he brings his people together. Sons and daughters who have the positional inheritance of a firstborn son. Male and female, all are one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. So men and women together have sonship. Rights as of a firstborn, rights of inheritance as sons in the house. And men and women are the bride of Christ. God gets us both ways. I love it. You're no longer a slave, but a son, an heir. This theme returns in chapter 24, and it is a great motivation to love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever start to feel a little high and mighty, a little holier than thou, remember you are a slave to sin like everybody else. Without mercy, without fellowship, without Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself even if right now your neighbor happens to be a slave. And I'll come back to that idea. Verse 17. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. And you shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now we pick up our puppy on Friday. But what's he talking about? The wages of a dog, the word dog in Hebrew is kelev, and that's the word that's used here, kelev. So it means a dog, but it's also a derogatory term that refer, refers to a male prostitute or a sodomite. So either way, male or female, if you have made money for sex, you do not bring that money to the Lord. It's tainted. Number three in the principles, refuse tainted money. Now, honestly, if we were going to do that in the world today, we wouldn't touch any money. Did you know that, that every dollar bill has traces of cocaine on it? That the, the money in your wallet, ones, fives, tens, whatever you have, twenties, it's got traces of cocaine on it. Every single one. <laughs> tainted money. Well, it's okay, Rick, I'll write a check. Good, that's fine too. Refuse tainted money. No, no, what does that mean to us? The ends don't justify the means. Because what he's talking about here, and he says, referring to a free will offering, a votive offering, that's a vow offering. You don't have to make that offering, a votive offering. You don't have to bring that. That's up to you. You just feel like giving to the Lord. But man, don't give stuff to the Lord to ameliorate your guilt. Don't, don't give tainted money to the Lord. Don't buy off God's disgust with your sin. Don't think that you can do that because only one thing purchases purity. If you address, Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 17, if you as address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He's talking to Christians. Peter's saying, have a little respect. And especially when we're talking about the assembly of the saints, we gather together, yeah, that's my right. It is not your right. It was blood bought by Jesus. That's why we assemble. That's how we are enabled even to come into the presence of God. And Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And we've read that verse so many times over the years. Why? Because it's an apex verse. You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. In all of God's word, there are certain verses that just stand out like mountaintops. And that's one of them. John 3.16 is another. And we could go on counting the verses that we hear a lot and we repeat a lot because they are apex verses. The blood of Christ is what purchased us. And so Moses says to Israel, refuse tainted money. What he would say to you and to me, the application is we can't buy our purity with anything but the blood of Christ. Only the blood. Now, staying with the theme of money, we're moving right along. Moses turns the, to the eighth command, which is you shall not steal. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So number four, retain no interest from a brother, from a sister, from among your people. Don't charge interest. And it's a great principle to remember because, hey, it's all God's in the first place. He gave it to you. So what he's given me is now mine to give. And not to charge and try to make something off of. All that I have is from him. And what's happening here is this goes to compassion and, and kindness. That the you shall not steal command. Man, that, that, that's not just limited to ripping someone off. There are all kinds of ways we can rip each other off. And Moses says, by the Spirit, charging interest is one of them. By the way, this also works spiritually. Spiritually. Don't charge interest to a brother or a sister. Don't hold things over a brother or sister's head. You owe me for this. Or, or playing those mental games in a relationship. Holding out on someone because they owe me. They need to make it up to me. No, they don't. Do you need to make it up to Jesus? Can you make it up to Jesus? Not a one of us can we're told to forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the standard for us. So don't charge people. Don't force them to make it up to you later with interest. Matthew 18, 21, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, well, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now I can see Peter whipping out a calculator and going 70 times seven, that's four. Okay, okay, 490. And Jesus is saying, no, you never stop forgiving. You don't hold stuff over someone's head. Don't charge interest in relationship. Verse 21, 
When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. I love what he says in verse 22. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. See, if you don't make a vow and then not follow through, not a problem. But if you're going to make a vow, you better be faithful to it. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And there's another great principle here. And we see it in verse 22. If you would refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. And Jesus expands on this verse later in his teaching. Principle number five. So we're already almost halfway done. Don't worry, we'll slow up in a minute. <laughs> Principle number five, refrain from vows. Refrain from vows. Doesn't mean you never make a vow, but man, when you make a vow, woman, when you make a vow, you be careful. You be sure you're gonna follow all the way through to the end. I was talking to a young couple about marriage um, and talking about marriage counseling. And I'll tell you where I'm at. I, I'm probably totally wrong on this, so don't write this down. But where I'm at with marriage counseling, the best learning that any couple can get regarding marriage is in marriage. That's where you learn. You can have all the premarital counseling ahead of time you want, but once you hit that first year, that's when it really matters. And that's where you start to learn how ugly a person you really are how selfish you really are. I'm not calling any of y'all selfish. I'm calling myself. The things I learned about myself in my first 35 years of marriage, <laughs> what I tell young couples now before I marry them is two things. I, I will marry you on two conditions. Number one, that Jesus is centerpiece in your ceremony. And number two, that you will never use the word divorce. And I, I, I always have to caveat this for any of you who have been through divorce. I, I hate talking about it because I know it's painful. And I know it can, it can bring up false guilt. Don't go there. Don't, don't sit in that place. That's not the issue here. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce a little bit more in just a minute here. But the whole issue of, of faithfulness in a marriage, this is the most significant vow we make aside from Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I vow to follow you. That's the most important one anybody will ever make in their life. Second to it would be marriage. And I, I shared this recently. It's the one covenant we have. Aside from the new covenant, we have the marriage covenant. And so the Lord says, man, keep your vow. If you're going to make the vow, Jesus, here's Jesus' commentary, Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Context, remember, Moses said, you don't even have to do that. If you don't do it, it won't be sent to you. So just don't do it. But if you do it, keep it. Jesus says, that's what you've heard. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, I'm finding that one out. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Now, Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't make the marriage vow, and he's not saying you shouldn't make a vow to follow the Lord. But the Pharisees were all about the vow. 
They vowed every day on everything. They vowed on the temple. They vowed, vowed in the heavens. They vowed on the earth. They were vowing all the time, and especially loudly in public so people would know what, what faithful vowing people they were. And Jesus says, knock it off, man. You're not keeping half of it. We all know. Don't make a vow. Just refrain from vows. Verse 24, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, I like this one, then you may eat grapes until you're fully satisfied but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Now, regarding the grapes, this is great. Christopher had never had a grape. Cheryl brought him home from the store, big thing of grapes, big juicy grapes, and, and, and we're like, Christopher, you want some grapes? And he goes, nah, I don't like grapes. Have you ever had a grape? Nah. <laughs> How do you know if you like it? He's eaten all of the grapes. They're all gone today. We bought them yesterday. They're gone. Christopher just consumed them all. Apparently, he thought he was in his neighbor's field. You can eat the grapes till you're satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. And the whole idea is now he's, he's by the way, dealing with stealing. Don't go into your neighbor's vineyard and just take baskets and baskets and haul off a harvest to be used later. Don't go into your neighbor's standing grain and, and harvest it and take it for yourself. But, but if you're hungry, eat. You know what this is? This is God's concern for fast food. Where else are they going to eat when they're traveling? When they're down the road from their house, when they're not able to get home and they're starting to feel famished and, and hungry and looking around and there's a vineyard. Israelites were allowed to go into a vineyard and pick enough grapes to have some lunch and head on their way. And you could do that in your neighbor's vineyard, and they could do that in your vineyard. Or if it's standing grain, you walk through the grain, you kind of rub your hands over the top, and you pick the grain, and you can eat that grain. It wasn't the tastiest in the world. I mean, it wasn't like a cheeseburger, but it was something. You probably wouldn't eat a cheeseburger in Israel because of the cheese and meat, but that's another conversation. You can do this. You can walk through and pick the grain. Does this remind you of a story? Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on Shabbat, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, and they were just following Moses' prescription in Deuteronomy 23. They were just doing exactly what they were told that they could do. You're in the grain field, you're hungry, order some fries. I mean, go ahead and pick some grain. You can eat right there as you're walking through. That's what they're doing. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Oh, the Sabbath. Of their own Sabbath rules, and get that, this was not a violation of Sabbath as far as Moses and the law were concerned. This was a violation of rabbinical additions, of redefinitions of Shabbat. The Lord made very clear in Torah what you can and cannot do on Shabbat. But the Pharisees came along and began to add and pile on, and you can read it in Talmud, all of the different prescriptions. There are 38 different categories. I think I've told you before. 38 different categories of rules for Sabbath so that you don't abuse the Sabbath day. So they're getting on to Jesus, and, and what they're concerned about is they, they see the apostles picking the standing grain those guys are winnowing and they're harvesting, which is a twofold violation of Sabbath. They're not winnowing, they're snacking. 
and they're not harvesting. They are eating, just as Moses said, until you're fully satisfied. They're just grabbing a snack. Well, well, Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiatar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread. That's the showbread that was only supposed to be in the, in the holy place. Ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And you got to see the faces of the Pharisees going, because uh, you know, they know the story. No doubt they had no idea how to explain how David violated this important rule, this law, and it was okay. And then Jesus goes on to explain. He says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And it just shut him up and it shut him down. You ever think about how hard the Pharisees worked on the Sabbath to try and catch Jesus. I mean, they just spent so much time. We got to catch him in a violation. Okay, follow him around. And, and it's so funny. They're in the grain field here, and they're just picking heads of grain. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Pharisees just pop up. Aha! Gotcha! I mean, it would be like if you and me were driving through McDonald's, and all of a sudden, someone pounds on the window. Ha! Gotcha! Gluten! I mean, these guys were going everywhere. Understand this. When I say principle number six, refresh the hungry, that is part of Sabbath rest. It's part of Sabbath rest. It's why all of us Washingtonians gain weight in wintertime. We're refreshing the hungry. You know, there's nothing else to do. It's dark at four o'clock. You might as well start eating. Refresh the hungry. It's part of Sabbath rest. God would feed us. He cares about these things. Well, Continuing on, chapter 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance." What do we do with this? Well, the first thing we do with this, because people will say, okay, because of that law, if I've been divorced and then remarried and divorced, I cannot go back to the previous spouse. I'm going to give you Rick's opinion on this. We're under grace, and God is a God of resurrection. So he can resurrect a previous marriage that was dead. But I would say to you that the reason that this is here is be careful. Be careful. Principle number seven here is regard the heart. Regard the heart. This passage right here, these four verses, became great controversy. In the legal arguments of divorce and remarriage in Israel for centuries, 
And by the first century, it had coalesced pretty much into two camps, two schools or houses of rabbinical thought. There was the house of Hillel, the rabbi Hillel, and, and both these guys came around uh, a couple centuries or a couple generations, sorry, a couple generations before Jesus, the people of Hillel, house of Hillel, which was liberal, religiously liberal. And then there was the house of Shammai, which was religiously conservative, and we see this exact thing play out, and I'll read this to you in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, if you've got your Bible open, why don't you flip over there, keep your finger in Deuteronomy 24, and we'll be right back. Matthew 19, this is raised to Jesus, and it is the dispute between house of Hillel and house of Shammai. And in this dispute, the whole point that the Pharisees are trying to do, they're, they're just trying to catch Jesus again, trying to trip him up. This is all about entrapment. It's not about theology or doctrine. So they come to him. It says, when Jesus finished, Matthew 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Note that, for any reason at all. That's the Hillel school. That is, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. The Hillel school of liberal thought said that if the wife burns the toast, he can divorce her. If he finds a better fit as a spouse, he can divorce her. If she does something displeasing to him or angering to him, he can divorce her. All the powers in the hand of the husband, the wife has no power whatsoever, and whatever the husband wants to do, he has every right, he can send her out, and he can just write her a certificate of divorce. And they did it this way. I kid you not, they say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and they write up a document, hand it to her, and she's done. It was that easy for the man to do. And the Hillel school said, that's the deal. Yeah, that's right. Any man can divorce any woman for any reason. The Pharisees asked Jesus this. Pharisees were of the school of Shammai. And he answered and he said to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus does not answer that question. <laughs> I just, I love the interplay and how Jesus responds. And he's so spot on and just so cool and collected. And they're trying to catch him. And he's like, look, the point is not, uh, can a man divorce his wife? The point is that when they're married, they're one flesh. That's the deal. Okay, that's not satisfactory, Jesus. The Pharisees are thinking, they were concerned with the morality of marriage. And so once again, they're trying to entrap him, and so they push him a little further. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Good question. If divorce is not supposed to be a thing at all, why did Moses allow it? Huh? Huh? Tell us, Jesus. <laughs> and the second school of rabbinical thought was Bet Shammai, house of Shammai, and that school said divorce was only allowed in the case of adultery. There was no other allowance for it. So a man couldn't just do whatever he wanted and send the wife away. He had to have proof of adultery, and that was it. By the way, note this, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is not dealing with adultery when he's talking about divorce. 
If you go back and read it, and we can look back there in just a second, he's not talking about adultery. He's talking about, chapter 24, verse 1, some indecency. So it's this whole issue of if a man has found something he just doesn't like and, and wants to send his wife away. The focus of Moses is actually this, get this, legal protection for the woman after a divorce. It's not whether or not a divorce is okay. It's that if a man does this for whatever reason, right or wrong, if he does this to a woman, she has legal protection in the form of the certificate of divorce. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted this. He permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. And he just flipped it completely over and he says the man commits adultery. School of Hillel, man can do whatever he wants. School of Shammai, nope. You have to be restricted only to adultery. School of Jesus, regard the heart. Regard the heart. Why was this certificate given? Because you guys have hard hearts. Because when a man gets hard-hearted against a woman, it is not fair to her. It's not right to her. And at least she should have some kind of protections. Hillel and Shammai, again, they lived a couple of generations before Jesus. And yet, if you go to Talmud today, it records over 300 differing opinions between these two houses. It said if you, if you want to have a, a great argument over four different opinions, get three rabbis in the same room. Just because of the tendency to argue in the interest of arguing, my friends, trying to get through life by human wisdom always leads to confusion and frustration and division. What does Jesus do? He regards the heart. Jesus goes straight to the heart. He bypasses the entire debate and you call it a heart bypass, except he doesn't bypass the heart. He bypasses the foolishness and goes to the heart. And he says, the pattern is Eden. The pattern is Eden. How many women did Adam have to choose from? <laughs> Just one. And you could say Eve wasn't even his choice. She was God's choice. It's the first arranged marriage in history, Adam and Eve. God arranged the whole thing. Adam didn't have any other choice. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's something of tenderness and care and honor and respect that is in that first marriage. Adam was in awe. That's why he named her, whoa, man. <laughs> For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But again, this divorce was not based on adultery. Go back to chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. In fact, what Moses says, and you can challenge me on this, but just do it later. In these four verses, Moses is not even speaking law. This isn't law. This is what you would call protasis apodosis. Protosis is the, it's an if-then statement. Protosis, if, apodosis, then. So if you've got this situation where a man takes his wife and then he sends her out and he does this, he gives her a certificate of divorce, and then she marries another and he does the same thing, then first husband can't go get her and remarry her 
It's regarding the heart. God is putting a practical limitation on divorce to protect the heart of the woman. I would say as well as the heart of the man. Edmund Woods says, the written certificate of divorce, which is called the Sefer Keritut, was a wise provision to safeguard the woman's rights. It was put into her hand, giving her legal protection and security to marry again. But the Lord says this, and he's consistent throughout Scripture. Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. And by the way, I, I would venture to guess, in fact, I assume that everybody who's been divorced hates divorce. No one's looking forward to it. No one's saying, hey, I'm going to get married so I can leave him as soon as possible. Nobody enjoys it. Nobody has fond memories of it. So it's, it's, it's painful for the heart, and therefore God hates it. He says, I hate divorce and him who covers his garment with wrongdoing, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, he's talking about, with your wife. So God is especially concerned for wives, as Moses is speaking here, who had no rights at the time and didn't have the same legal recourse as their husbands had. Regard the heart. God is regarding the heart of the woman. And by the way, speaking of regarding the heart, look at verse 5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. That's a great law. You get your first year of marriage off from any responsibility. Just be responsible to your wife. That's all you got to do. That's a great idea. And so I told you before, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 7, the first, the year of betrothal was off from any duty or military service, and now the first year of marriage is taken off as well. So you get two years to consider her, to regard her heart, for her to love you, a year off for the betrothed, a year off for the newlyweds. I like how the King James translates verse 5. It says, he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. I guess it's because she just married you, so she probably needs some cheering up. <laughs> but there's a great principle here, and that principle is take the first year of marriage to learn how to put the marriage first, to focus on it, to let it be. Man, and what I mean by putting the marriage first is put your spouse first. Little prescription for marriages in trouble. Put your spouse first. <laughs> Are you kidding me? you know what she's done? Put her first. Yeah, but she, put her first. Yeah, well, he just, he just does his own thing. He doesn't care about me and his, put him first. In a marriage where husband puts wife first and wife puts husband first, there is healing that can happen. Put your marriage first, which means your spouse. Another way to put that is simply, again, regard the heart. Regard the heart. I think that's number seven in our principles. Am I right? Are we up to that? Okay, so number eight, respect life. Just respect life. Verse six. No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. And if a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die and you shall purge the evil from among you. <laughs> you may say, what do verses 6 and 7 have in common? One is borrowing or taking someone's millstone or handmill as collateral. They owe you something, so you take that as collateral. And the other one's kidnapping. 
They're both about life. They're two extremes where Moses is talking about the respect of life. In the first, a hand mill, this was used in the daily food preparation. If you didn't have a hand mill, you couldn't prepare food. And if you couldn't prepare food, you're going to starve. So this is basic daily life. If you're going to borrow from someone and you need some collateral in, in the loan or the borrowing, don't take the hand mill. Leave them the ability to, to take care of their daily food requirements. And then, of course, on the far extreme is kidnapping, which is punishable by death because it's, this, it's the theft of a life. Don't steal life. Respect life. Sons of Israel, by the way, did that to Joseph, remember? Kidnapped their own brother, threw him in a pit, sold him off into slavery, thinking to ruin and destroy and his life and just make him disappear. And God used it to take care of all of Israel. Interesting. Don't take my toaster oven. I need it every day. Or in my house, it's the air fryer, right, Corey? We use that a lot. Don't take our air fryer. If you need something collateral, take something else. And don't take a life. Respect life. This country needs to learn again how to respect life. That is a, a huge part of the whole problem. All the shootings and the murders and the problems and the violence is there's no respect of life anymore. People don't care. Respect life. This is God's call. Verse 8, be careful against an infection. Stay with this idea. Respect life. Be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests teach you as I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. You don't want this infection to spread, so do as I've told you to do. Verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. And so Moses is giving these great practical examples of, of respecting life. And he says, you know, with, with sickness, with infectious disease, be careful. And he, he remembers Miriam, sister. Remember what happened with Miriam. She and Aaron were looking at Moses going, who do you think you are? Who made you boss over all of us? And they were jealous and they were envious. In fact, Miriam was green with envy, so God made her white as snow. <laughs> white with leprosy. And I, I respect life because there are other things that are infectious that affect life like envy and jealousy. He mentions Miriam. Paul said in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. If you're jealous, you're envious, you're covetous uh, of, of a neighbor, that is not loving your neighbor. And the problem is it'll start to, it'll start to spread Paul says in Galatians 5, 26, if we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. Let's not be boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Okay, so how can I stop the spread? Let's say in a church fellowship, there's envy going on. Maybe there's some kind of strife going on. There's jealousy from a brother to a brother or a sister to a sister. How do we stop the spread of jealousy and envy in our own hearts? Let me ask you. Okay, don't raise your hand. How many of you have been envious in the last year of somebody else? Or a little bit jealous of something you've seen? Well, I wouldn't mind being able to do that or having that or being in that position. How do you stop that in your own heart when you find yourself becoming jealous? The answer is very simple. You just go see Jesus. Just like the leper who came to Jesus 
and said in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, if you're willing, you, you can make me clean. There are so many times in our lives we can just go to Jesus and deal with our sin. And we struggle with it. Why am I like this? Why do I feel this way? And we, you know, instead of wallowing in guilt, take a walk and go see Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean, the leper said. Mark 141, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. You ever thought about this? Touching a leper was unlawful. This is a violation of law. You, you don't touch a leper. You can't touch a leper. You touch a leper, you're unclean. Jesus touched the leper. Now, in other studies, we've talked about Jesus kept the law perfectly, but he touched a leper, therefore violated the law and became unclean, right? Wrong. The moment Jesus touched him, the leprosy was gone. <laughs> See, Jesus in perfect purity did not risk becoming unclean. Jesus was so clean that simply by touching the leper, the leper became clean as well. That's how it works. I got some sin issue in my life, jealousy, envy, something that's infectious in me, and I can't stop the spread. I go to Jesus. Jesus, you can make me clean, and he touches you, and you're clean. Isaiah 1.16, the Lord said, Come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. Chapter 24, verse 10. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. The word pledge again there is collateral. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him. The assumption is the pledge is his coat or maybe his blanket that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. It will be unrighteousness or it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. And this whole idea is just respect human life with dignity and with kindness and how you treat one another. Love each other. And if you loan someone something and you need, and you need collateral for the loan, well, let them bring it to you. Don't go charging into the house. Don't take something that they need. Verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who's poor and needy. Whether he's one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns, you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it become sin to you. I wonder what Jesus would say about paying wages to an illegal migrant. I'm not going to say what he would say. I'm not Jesus. But I wonder what he would say. And we have, I think, probably in this room, some strong political feelings about the southern border, the wall, and illegal immigration, and amnesty, and all of these things. And the water's getting hotter for Pastor Rick. But I know we have opinions. But let me back off of this a little bit and ask you a question. How do you treat a waiter or a waitress? Or the trash guy? Or the septic guy, I don't know how they do it. That's got to be the, the grossest job in the world. It's amazing. They just reach right in there. Oh, that's the problem. You know, and I'm, I'm, they open that thing up. I'm running because I'm just going to throw up. How do, you, how do you feel about a migrant in the country illegally? 
What this does now is deals, I believe, with a God's eye view of a political hot potato. But before we get into it, look at verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So before we even talk about anybody else, Moses inserts this one phrase, this one verse. The Bible is crystal clear on personal responsibility. You're responsible for yourself before God. Fathers are responsible for fathers. Sons are responsible for sons. We all are responsible for ourselves. I love the the, uh, passage in Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, All souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son, and the soul who sins will die. So personal responsibility. And then Moses continues, verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien, that's a foreigner, or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, or literally the fatherless, and for the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands." By the way, Boaz did that in the story of Ruth. Boaz, recognizing Ruth was a widow and uh, was attached to Naomi, who also was a widow, uh, Boaz said, hey, guys, leave the extra gleanings. Well, you don't want us to pick those up, Boaz? No, leave them. It'll be taken care of. So as Ruth came in there, not only were there just the, the things that were accidentally left over, but there was more. He intentionally left provision for her as a, as a widow. I, it's just beautiful. Verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, it shall not go over, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Number nine in our list. Remember, you were a slave. This is huge. So important in our love for our neighbor as ourself that we remember where we came from, what we were. You were a slave. And here he's talking about how we treat the alien, which is the foreigner, the non-citizen. How do we treat this person? And how about the widow without the cover and protection and love of husband? What about the orphan who has no father? You know why these three, I think, are chosen? Because the alien, the widow, and the orphan lack the opportunities of a citizen, a spouse, and a son. The foreigner doesn't have the opportunity that the citizen has. We need to remember that. And, of course, the widow doesn't have the opportunity, perhaps, that she would have had with a spouse. And I know it's a little bit different now, but even now, 
it is more difficult. And an orphan, what hope do they have? Unless they become a son. And the Bible even says, goes so far as to say, how we treat these is true religion. True religion. Turns out it's not blue jeans after all. <laughs> true religion jeans. I don't know if you've seen those. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And we need to remember that while we were once slaves, foreigners, widows, orphans, what are we now? We're citizens of the kingdom. We are spouses to the groom, bride of Christ. And we're sons of God through Jesus Christ. Peter, again, said, 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you see what Moses is doing here? He's teaching them how to love each other. And a key way to love your neighbor is remember you were a slave. Chapter 25, verse 1, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the just judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. So this is a, pun this is a crime not worthy of death, but there is still punishment. The judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. Here it is. He may beat him 40 times, but no more so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. Assyrian law called for 50 lashes. The code of Hammurabi called for 60 lashes. God is once again setting limits. God knows what the outcome of 40 lashes would be versus all the rest. And the Bible teaches corporal punishment. We may not like it in our culture today, the changing winds of culture. Culture always changes. God's word never does. And so it calls for corporal punishment. Proverbs 10 verse 13, on the lips of the deserving, or discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. So beating with a rod was legit, was allowable in Torah law, and was limited to 40 specifically. And I want you to think about this. It's interesting. Punishment was an immediate deterrent in Israel. We've talked about laws of deterrence, and so many of these laws ahead of time were to keep people from acting on these things. Laws of deterrence. Here's what I want you to know. Deterrence works better than detention. Let me say it one more time, because I got a yes, and I'm happy about that. Deterrence works better than detention. And do you know what? There is no mention in Torah law anywhere of incarceration. It's simply not a punishment in Israel. There was beating. There was execution. There was no incarceration. You didn't put someone in jail. Do you know that it costs more to keep a prisoner in jail in America today than it does to send a kid to Harvard? That, that's actual statistical truth. It doesn't work. It doesn't do what we think. You know, just get them out of, out of sight and out of mind. Because we can't have corporal punishment. We can't deter these things. <laughs> well, 50, 40 lashes limited. 40 lashes. Now, even so, the 
beatings weren't always just. Paul took a bunch of beatings. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. he said, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, or what is famously called the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes minus one, they say that 39 then is the number of mercy and 40 is the number of judgment or punishment. But this whole idea of the 40 minus one is not for mercy, it's for mathematics. <laughs> it's all about saying, we don't want to accidentally beat them 41 times and violate law. So we'll count to 39 and stop, just in case. We'll give ourselves a one lash leeway. But speaking, listen, of unjust, and Paul was unjustly beaten multiple times. But speaking of unjust, while lashing was the Jewish punishment, this would be beating with a rod. It's very specific. It was beat with a rod up to 40 times, depending on the case. Scourging with a flagellum was a purely Roman idea. This is not Torah. What happened to Jesus was not Torah, was not, it was Roman law. The flagellum, you know, strips of leather with bone and, and, and rocks and, and chunks of metal in it so that when it lay across the back, when it was lashed, it would catch the skin and they would drag it across the back. Don't assume that Jesus got 39 lashes. He probably got a lot more than that. And there wasn't much of his back left when they were done. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, you were healed. Remember, you were a slave. I was a slave until Jesus took our place and our punishment. Chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. I like that one. Poor ox. He's out there working hard. Let him eat something. Now, Paul takes this and he, he applies it. And, and uh, principle number 10, remove the muzzle. Remove the muzzle. Paul applies this specifically to pastoral ministry. Twice in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, he says it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. But then Paul says, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher in hope of sharing if we sowed spiritual things in you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul makes the case. And he says the same to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages, which means that even a dumb pastor, a pastor's as dumb as an ox, can still get paid. See, I work these things out in my brain. The thing is that the servant of the Lord needs to feed. And I think this is more significant than whether a pastor should be paid or not or any of that conversation. The servant of the Lord needs to feed. So remove the muzzle. You all are doing it right now. We do it every time we open the Word of God. We remove the muzzle. Too many servants of the Lord in the church today are functioning with very little food. I'm talking about the Word of God. And how can we drive people to work and serve and keep things going and, and build programs and make our mark in the community and, and put our footprint on the land and all this serious labor for the church and not 
and not allow the feeding of the good word of God. Remove the muzzle. Feed on the word while you serve. I was thinking about this today because that's what I get to do. You know, I come in in here and I'll do an hour, hour and 15, two hour teaching, whatever it is. And I've been feeding all week. And even tonight as I'm teaching, I'm feeding. I love that. I'm an ox who gets to feed while I thresh. And, and that's the idea that we feed on the Word and stay constant in the Word. And by the way, I was talking with my sons the other day about the fact that there are some things in technology I appreciate. I do appreciate that I can turn on YouTube and I can listen to any number of great pastors, great teachers, and I do, by the way. And so should you. You're driving to work. Listen to a podcast of teaching in the Word. If, you, if you're at home and you're just doing work around the house, pop on a, a favorite pastor. Bridge Christian Fellowship, Whidbey Island, <laughs> on YouTube. You can find it. No, I mean, just be in the Word. There are so many ways we can be in the Word consistently, even if you don't have time to sit down, open up the Bible, and be studying it through. And by the way, I think that's significant as well. But feed on the Word. Remove the muzzle. Feed as you serve. Verse 5 when brothers leave, live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her. Now, he's unmarried, so her husband's brother, unmarried brother, shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, I don't know if they give him like a button, you know, or a special T-shirt. It's got the name on there. It, it's literally bet halus hanaal. You just write it out. Bet halus hanaal. We might translate it sandal loser. The house of him whose sandal is removed. The dude's got no soul the problem. He's a real heel, Jake. He's a heel. We could go on, but I don't want to tie you up. I want this teaching to be laced with puns. Anyway, this is, this is called, are you awake tonight? You with me? Maybe we should turn down the lights and then turn them up so we wake you up. This is called the law of the Leverite marriage. The Leverite marriage. Not the Levite. It's not talking about Levite. It's Leverite, and it's a Latin word, which means brother's marriage. It's the law of the brother's Marriage, that the brother comes along and, and performs the duty of continuing the family line with the wife of his older brother who has died. Which is why when the older brother sought a woman for his wife, the younger brother was so interested in who she was. Got to see her. Make sure that I'm okay with this union just in case my bro uh, dies. The Leverite marriage plays out beautifully in the book of Ruth. It's such a tender love story. Four chapters, read it. Read it tonight before bed. You'll love it. The Moabite gal, Ruth, who, who marries into Israel, 
And she, she becomes daughter-in-law to Naomi. But, but Ruth's first husband, Naomi's son, Mahlon, whose name, by the way, means sickly, he died. Mahlon, sickly, died. That makes sense. But Ruth is devoted to Naomi, loves Naomi. So she says, I'm not going to leave you. Her, her, the, the other gal who was married to the other son who also died, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, she went off back to Moab. But Ruth said, no, no, I'm staying with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's a very famous line. And so Ruth stays with Naomi, and they go back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, which is where Naomi's husband's inheritance was. But now there's no husband. We need a brother. We need the Leverite marriage, someone to come in and marry Ruth so that there's some, some provision for Naomi in her old age. And, and Ruth, is, as a young uh, widow, that they be taken care of and Ruth goes and she meets Boaz, sees him in the field, and, and, and Naomi says, this guy's a catch. And by the way, he's in the family line. So we can, you can have a great husband, and I can have my land. <laughs> and so you know, you know the story. Then Ruth goes, and, and in essence, I won't get all into it, but she proposes to him. Kind of how it works. Boaz receives, accepts that proposal, but he says, listen, here's the deal. There's another next of kin ahead of me. So if he doesn't want to marry you, then I will. So they go before the elders, and the whole thing plays out. Thankfully, the other guy became the sandal loser, and Boaz, Boaz becomes the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Principle number 11, like Ruth, recognize your redeemer. Recognize your Redeemer. Ruth is a prophetic love story of Christ and his Gentile bride, the church. Happens in Bethlehem. I mean, it's so beautifully set up. The Gentile bride, the outsider, the widow, comes in and is made part of, of, of Israel. But it's so beautiful because she even makes her way into the lineage of Jesus Christ Matthew 1, verse 5, Luke 3, 32. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit more on Sunday morning. Ruth is the outsider. The, the widow becomes the bride of Boaz. And ultimately then, David will be born in that line. Follow it down. You get to Jesus. Now, quickly, the Sadducees, they did not see Jesus as the Redeemer for who, for who he was. They rejected him. They wanted to use the Leverite law simply to entrap the Redeemer. Just listen to this. It says, on that same day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, which is why they're Sadducees. Yep, that's why they're sad. You see, so they came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. There it is, Deuteronomy 25.5. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. You know, you think about by maybe the fourth or fifth guy, they'd really be worried about marrying her at all because they're all dying. <laughs> I just don't know how that works. Second and third down to the seventh, last of all, the woman died. And the Sadducees say, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? They are so disingenuous. They don't believe in this. For they had all married her, they say. And Jesus answered and said, you're mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. 
you do not get it. What don't they get? In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, which Jesus knows this is their issue, he goes right at it. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus says he's not the God of the, living, uh, of the dead, but of the living Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your forefathers, they all died, right? But God says, I am their God currently, right now. They're alive. He's the God of the living. Jesus just nails them with the truth of resurrection. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You could just see them clapping as the Sadducees skulk off. These are words of life. It's all about life. Moses is speaking words of life because the words come from the spirit of life. Jesus is speaking words of life because he is the life. And Jesus redeems us to life eternal. Now, we're going to finish this, and the last section may be a little bit rough. But I'll go ahead and give you the principle right now. Reject the flesh. Reject the flesh. Verse 11 of chapter 25, if two men... A man and his countrymen are struggling together and the wife of the one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand and you shall not show pity. I didn't write this. Okay, I didn't come up with these things. First of all, I got to ask, is this going to be a common occurrence in Israel that it has to be part of Torah? And secondly, it's the only time in all Torah law that someone's hand is cut off for doing something like this. This is a severe, serious, immediate punishment. If a woman were to do such a thing, it's not saying it's going to happen all the time, but, if, but what, what's the point? Why, why would Moses go to this place? All right. Since we're almost done, I, I can get into a little bit of trouble, but I want to warn you right out of the gate, this is a generalization. Doesn't mean it's exactly this way for every man and every woman, but this has been my experience. Men and women fight differently. Men, we have a tendency to duke it out and get over it. We fight it out, we argue, we debate, we disagree, and then we go, okay, let's get a cup of coffee. Women tend to hang on no pun intended. Especially when they think their man has been done wrong. Especially when they think hubby has been treated unfairly. And so applying this, and I truly think there is application here. Sisters, you may only know half the story. In fact, typically what will happen in a marriage, and it's, and it's something that I have Tried to, I don't always do this well, by the way, but I have tried to learn not to take conflicts home with me. Not to walk in the door and dump my conflicts on Cheryl. Because usually by the time I get home, I've already thought it through, worked it through, I'm cool, and if I dump it on her now, she's got to go through the whole process herself. She's going to become mama bear and be protective of me. Now she's going to form opinions about the conflict that I have with Jake. You wouldn't believe the things that she thinks about you. I can't, you know, I'm so sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm kidding. But she now has to deal with this stuff. And women, generalization here, 
Women tend to hold on to those things longer than men do. Men fight it out and go their way. Women, man, you, you wrong my man? I don't, you know, I'm not so ready to jump in there and make it all right. So ladies, understand this. You may only, you're only hearing, and I'm talking about in a marriage situation, you're only hearing what your husband's telling you. And I'm not even saying that he's lying, but he's going to tell you what his perception is. You're getting one side of the story. Don't assume. That doesn't mean you don't trust and love your husband. Of course you do. But really, maybe I should turn this around to husbands and say, guys, consider her heart before you go dump your conflicts on her. It's not fair to her. She wasn't there. She wasn't in the meeting. She didn't hear the conflict. She wasn't privy to all the information. And when you walk in the door and dump it on her, that's not fair. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Good, we're done with that one. Verse 13, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. The word abomination is to'abot and is used of witches and sexual immorality. And Moses here uses it to say, if you have unjust, unfair weights, and once again, we're do, thou shalt not steal. We're dealing with ripping people off because you got two different weights for depending, depending on who you're selling to. And it's talking about weights used in the marketplace. Depending on who you're selling to, if you like that guy, you'll, you'll use the better weight. If you don't like that guy, you use the heavier weight and it costs them more money. It's unfair. It's not right. Jesus said in Luke 6, 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And he says this, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. How you give out, expect that to come back your way. And stay with this. So th that's an abomination. And then he goes on and says, remember, what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked you from and attacked you all the among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. I like that last line. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you must not forget. Well, if I blotted out the memory, wouldn't I, wouldn't I then forget? Okay. Are you guys with me tonight? Because I, I just thought that was a little ironic there. What he's saying is you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget to do so. Don't forget to blot out the memory is what Moses is saying here. Why does Moses go there? He's just been talking about unfair measures and saying it's an abomination. Don't be unfair, don't be unjust. And then all of a sudden he goes, remember Amalek? This is the example that he gives for unjust measures. And it may seem a bizarre example, but listen, what do the Amalekites 
What do they represent in the Bible? And the answer is the flesh. Amalek is a picture of the flesh, and the flesh don't fight fair. The Amalekites attack the weak at the back of the pack. They try to take out when you're weak, when you're weary. Reject the flesh. Reject the flesh is the principle we're talking on here. That taking advantage of someone via any of these examples, and we could go all the way back through the chapter and, and back earlier in the, in the preaching of Moses. Taking advantage of someone, ripping someone off, dealing unfairly, that is the flesh. Reject the flesh. Because if we do these things, even unfair measures, it's an abomination to God. It's toabot. It's disgusting. Why? Because he is a God who delivers the slave into salvation. He's a God who expects us to do the same. Exodus 17, 16, Moses said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. My friends, Amalek is a picture of the flesh from generation to generation. And Paul said in Romans 8, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And I'll end with this tonight. You've been really good listening. How do we win this cross-generational war of the flesh that still rages today as it did even in the days of Moses? We win this war in the same way that Israel beat Amalek. How's that? You remember the story? Moses goes up on a hill. Battle rages below. Moses lifts up his hands and the battle goes the way of Israel. His hands get arms get heavy and the battle starts to go the way of the Amalekites. And so Aaron and Hur come alongside him and they hold up Moses' hands and Israel is victorious. How do you beat the flesh? There is great power when we hold up one another's hands in worship and in prayer. Now you can worship and pray at home and you should. But when we do that together, there is power to beat back the flesh. That's how we win that war. Father, we covered a lot of ground tonight, and I pray that you'll just now take these things and, and make them practical to us, Lord, useful in our spiritual lives and our walk. Lord, it's so fascinating to me to listen to Moses apply the law to Israel. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would do the same for us tonight. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters being here. And I simply ask, Lord, that now you will minister to us before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.